am aware that even in my my workshop this week, there are two people who have plenty of experience with public performance of different kinds. So I'm going to proceed with a very opinionated vision of why giving public reading is important and um, what to consider when you're doing it, maybe how to proceed. And then after I'm through, I'm hoping that we can open it up to discussion with questions or accounts of memorable readings that you've attended. Uh, I think that will hopefully give weight to my assertion that it's a really important part of being a, a creative writer. So I'm going to start with a couple of scenarios from my own experience. The one is, is me, the first is me in, uh, in disguise as an undergraduate reading with a kind of famous older writer. So two poets are reading in a bar on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. The older reader, who reads second, will give an understated but clear reading of her work that's very effective. The younger, warm-up reader walks through before the tiny audience with a messy sheaf of papers and only then starts shuffling through deciding what she will read. Um, not that one. Uh, no, no. So you get the idea. Her ramblings are punctuated by the arrivals and departures of people who walk through the bar and past a beaded curtain behind her to conduct drug transactions. <laughs> Afterwards, her friends who are in the audience mostly comment on the drug transactions and not on the work itself. The second scenario that I want to tell you about is when the experimental poet and performer Jackson McClough, has anybody ever heard of him? He had a, a kind of important following in New York, but he's not as well known, maybe outside of experimental circles. He came to Bard College to give a reading. Before his arrival, he sent ahead an elaborate list of requests for microphones for himself and his pianist, for amplifiers, for extension cords. And the ex organizer of the event, that was me, duly made the arrangements with the audiovisual department. But on the eve of the reading, the student who was responsible for delivering the goods states bluntly that he prefers to go to a party. And he stooges the organizer and the poet. So we scrambled to find one microphone and the shortest extension cord ever seen. After which, McClough huddles behind, like here's the piano, here's like another piano in a music room, and he was a man about this tall. He, he's quite near the electrical socket, actually, and delivers a reading so filled with anger and frustration that his work is charged with this mesmerizing clarity and energy. It was an unforgettable reading, which is to say that when things go awry, they can sometimes also go right. Scenario number three, summer readings at Naropa University. I'll not name the poet because this could be any one of a number of poets, but I will say that this seems to select out by gender. All poets reading this evening, and there are four, have been sternly told to limit their readings to 20 minutes. Poet K reads beautifully, but it eventually becomes clear that he doesn't intend to stop reading anytime soon. And there are two poets waiting in the wings for their turn. He reads on for no less than 45 minutes, continuing even after a request is politely called from the audience that his time is up. Finally, a Naropa representative approaches the stage and physically coaxes him down. <laughs> Another Naropa reading with the poet Robert Creeley. Anybody familiar with his work? 
He is sitting amongst old friends. Um, they are reading each other's work, talking with each other. He's clearly had a couple glasses of wine. He gives the most beautiful personal reading and then starts to cry and says, words are the only things we have to talk with. And I'm telling you, everybody there was crying. So there's an instance in which a very casual reading is also a very moving, intimate reading that lingers in memory and helps shape a sense of community and poetics. So I have another scenario to share with you later, but I hope this gives you a sense of the ways that readings can work or not work, how some writers use the energy of the event to elevate their work, and how others, through a lack of preparation or inattentiveness to their audience, end up, in a sense, betraying the best qualities of their own writing. And what I want to talk about today is how to give a reading of your creative work and why it's important to do that. The first thing that I want to say is that truly the most important reason for reading your work in public and reading it well is that you learn a lot about your own writing. In the privacy of your own workspace, it could be hard to tell if the dialogue sounds artificial, even if you're reading it aloud to yourself. If you've used the word florid too many times. If your use of natural world metaphors is fatally disrupted when you bring in that factory image if your love poem is embarrassingly cliched. Let me suggest that a public reading can be an exceedingly helpful way of clarifying what needs revision. It can be a little alarming to experience that when you're up there. I've been known to change the piece I'm reading as I read it. I once heard a poet end a poem with the line, and he was not able to sing again. She paused. She looked up. Then she said, no, I changed my mind about that last line. I'm going to read it again. He was able to sing again. So it completely changed the poem, but it was a remarkable moment for a listener to hear that. And similarly, you might be surprised and delighted when people in the audience laugh at the witticism that you thought was too subtle for people to catch. When the listeners spontaneously break into applause after you've finished reading a poem or a section, or when, as happened to me, a listener approached me after the reading to say, I liked your work because you're not afraid to show pain. A reading is one way to find out if the risks that you've taken pay off. Because the act of reading your work in, the act of reading your work in front of other people galvanizes tensions that show both you and your audience what is at stake and what decisions you made in constructing your work. So every semester that I'm teaching, I try to arrange for my students to give a public reading. And we begin by practicing in class, standing in front of each other. And you would think that that would be easy, because at a certain point, you really know these people, and you're probably pretty friendly with them. But students are often surprised that they're really nervous, especially nervous, to stand up in front of people they're with all the time. Um, and I think it's exactly discovering that self-conscious, performative aspect of public reading that helps to open up the potentialities of the, the writing itself. So here are the bossy things I say to them. Firstly, practice reading out loud before you're reading. I suggest standing in front of a mirror to do so. That will help you to remember to look up from your work, because you'll be looking at your own face. 
but also it will help you check in to see what your face looks like when you're reading. Second, when you read, read clearly. This is so important. Everybody knows it, but once you're up there in the stress of the moment, it becomes really easy to read really fast, as you probably all know, or to let your voice really drop. Remember that reading out loud makes word and literature into physical objects. Words suddenly become sensuous. Please try to be conscious of and ideally enjoy the physicality of this act. Remember when you were a child listening to a bedtime story and the bounce of the language captivated you so much or more than the meaning of the words themselves? So I'm going to give you two versions of something you perhaps heard as a child. The owl and the pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea green boat. They took some money and plenty of honey. I mean, they took some honey and plenty of money. Wrapped up in a five-pound note, the owl looked up to the stars above and sang to a small guitar, a beautiful pussy, a pussy, my love, what a beautiful pussy you are, you are, you are. So you've seen this happen at readings, right? Where people just, they panic. The owl and the pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea-green boat. They took some honey and plenty of money wrapped up in a five-pound note. The owl looked up to the stars above and sang to a small guitar, Oh, lovely pussy, oh, pussy, my love, what a beautiful pussy you are, you are. What a beautiful pussy you are. <laughs> In texts much more sober and less oriented towards sound than this one, it's still the case that reading handles language cleanly and thoughtfully, and that will be resonant for the audience. It helps if they can hear the actual words. My advice is feel the edges of the words in your mouth. If you can feel them as you say them, your audience should be able to hear them. Three, it can be useful to read to someone other than yourself to make sure on issues of intonation and personal rhythm, you can get some feedback about your clarity. Um, everybody has patterns. I was listening to our president, who's an extremely intelligent and articulate person. When he talks, there's a lot of short little phrases and ums. I find it really distracting, and it sometimes makes it harder to get at the ideas that he's communicating. If you don't have someone to listen to you, you can tape yourself on a tape recorder, or there are internet resources. There's one called Audacity. Uh, you can tape yourself or record yourself and then listen back. Do you tend to go up at the ends of your sentences? Or do your phrases go inadvertently down? Does your Australian protagonist inexplicably develop a Texas accent whenever you have her speak? It can be hard to identify these tendencies unless you practice reading and, even better, have a sympathetic listener. Noting these tendencies and trying to correct for them will make your reading sharper and more accessible. Fourth, the same thing goes for your personal rhythm. Every reader, without exception, has a personal meter or pacing. You can hear it in everybody's, in any person's everyday speech. Um, this is not necessarily the same thing as a meter of your work. It's the pacing of the way you talk. And I, my example would be Barack Obama. Um, through the long, hot nights of readings at Naropa University, I'd often sit behind the fiction writer, Bobby Louise Hawkins, who always brings a fan with her to readings. 
And eventually, someone would be reading and I'd be fixating on her fan because it would absolutely capture, like a metronome, what the reader was doing. And pretty soon I wasn't listening at all to the reading. I was just swaying with her fan. So if you're aware that you have these patterns, you don't, you don't want to soothe people so much that they drift <laughs> off into their own daydream. Um, try to figure out how to vary the pacing in a way that matches what's happening in the work. Fourth, before you read, carefully select what you are going to read. It's distracting to see an author shuffling through their papers up at the podium. It communicates to your listeners that you're unprepared, and that is not respectful towards them. At the same time, I strongly recommend that you view every reading as an opportunity toward creative editing. By that I mean consider the relationship between the parts of your work. For example, if you're a poet and you have a chapbook or a book of poems, you'll already have thought a lot about the sequencing of the work. But this is an opportunity to try it a different order. What if you read the last poem in your chapbook first? How will that frame everything that follows? <clears throat> what if you read a poem that you almost put in this collection but later decided to take out? It's a chance to kind of think again about its relationship to the other things you've written. I really love to experiment this way and have sometimes taken two of my books or projects and alternated between the two in order to find out what kinds of shared themes exist between two pretty different thematic conceptions. So I wrote a book where I was using Fernando Pessoa's work, and Fernando Pessoa wrote in personas. He wrote under different pseudonyms. He called them heteronyms. So in playing with his work, it became a lot about considering what identity and selfhood is. And then I later started working on a bunch of poems about modernist writers um, taking on their personas and having them talk to each other. So um, Antonin Artaud talking to the poet Amy Lowell. And I alternated those poems, poems from each of those projects in one reading. And it, I, I don't know what the audience thought. It pleased me to see me thinking about identity and me trying on different identities. So that's just an example of where different kinds of work might lead you to consider what your larger trajectory as a writer is. Um, once I started reading with the, very, the most recent poem I had written and then read poem by poem backward 20 years to some of my earliest work. And I told the audience what I was doing, but the process, again, helped me find out what my long-term concerns and preoccupations had been. And the feedback I got from people was really useful. I mean, they, they were recognizing some things that I would hope to have people recognize. Um, it might seem that this kind of exercise could be put in place more, na more naturally for a poet who's giving a reading, but let me suggest that a fiction writer or a nonfiction writer could experiment in the same way. Say in your writing you set up the story in a strictly chronological manner, you could try out a reading when you disrupt that chronology. You put more recent elements last. Um, so it's a different way of exploring what your narrative arc is and what tensions are there. Um, similarly, if you're working on a longer project, perhaps a novel that has two or more narrators, you might try excerpting from different chapters in order to juxtapose the contrasting voices and narratives of those characters. What I'm getting at here is that no piece of writing is static. 
Good writing is always dynamic, and because it is, even a reading might be a chance to represent the work in new ways. And finally, having a plan for your work when you're giving a reading permits you to read flexibly and responsibly. Once I was reading with another poet who proceeded to read a poem that was so spookily like one of my own, I quickly flipped through my papers to find it, and when it was my turn to get up, I said, I'm reading this poem for Eric as a kind of thanks and companion piece to his poem, which I think made it more fun for both of us. Um, Fifth, take into account who your audience is likely to be. So that means, again, you're reading responsibly. Every audience is different, and it pays to think about this beforehand. My background is in experimental poetry, and when I'm giving a reading at the Poetry Project in New York or at Woodland Pattern in Milwaukee, I know I'm at home with my own species, and I can read that special dialect that we share. But I've also been asked to read for the Women's Chamber of Commerce in Boulder, Colorado. So when I was there, I strove to read my most accessible, least experimental poems. Reading at a college one year, I had planned on reading fairly challenging poems based on the person who had invited me to come. But at an informal talk before the reading, the nature of the student questions to it, what is your astrological sign, persuaded me that I should change my plans and read poems that had more of a narrative framing. Context matters. And paying attention to this is one way you can be respectful of the people who have come to listen to you. Six, you would think that it should go without saying, but I've seen people transgress this courtesy far too many times. Show up on time for your reading or a little early. Don't make the audience wait for you, and don't interrupt another reader who started the reading. And don't leave before the last reader has finished. If another author isn't important enough to listen to, why should anyone listen to you? One of the things that gets uh, repeated often to people as they prepare to read is this phrase, never apologize, never explain. Have you heard this phrase? Yeah, everybody's heard this. I tend to agree that it's a bad, this is my seventh point for those who are enumerating. I think it's a good idea to avoid apologies. That's a bad sign to the audience that something that they may not like is is coming and you you don't want that possibility to arise. But I think it can be really useful to explain at times. Um, whereas authors who broadcast right off the bat that their work is lousy, lousy will alienate readers, it can give, um, an explanation can give readers or listeners a chance to pace themselves. Say you have 20 minutes to read and you want to use the entire time to read a pretty dense stream of consciousness monologue. Is it a bad thing to tell the audience that that's what you're going to do? I don't think it is. I think it helps people to know and have some expectation. If you were just to launch in without explanation, I might spend a good deal of that 20 minutes trying to figure out what you were doing and when it was going to end. There's nothing quite like hearing a poet say, tonight I'll only be reading four poems, and then find out that in the course of the reading, the fourth poem is 40 pages long. Or consider this. Your story operates on a very specific formal conceit. Every paragraph includes a quote from the Gettysburg Address. Well, you might want the reader to discover this for him or herself, but it could correspondingly be fun for someone who hasn't got the text in front of them or 
who is only dimly aware of what's in the Gettysburg Address, to have this information so he can track what you're doing more easily. So that's my view. Giving pertinent information about the material is not wrong. I would also say that when you're reading emotionally involving work or uh, work that is formally complex or has some kind of density, it's fine to pause between parts of it and say a few things so that the audience has an opportunity to absorb what you've been doing. And that's why I think we have stanza breaks and why we turn the page. Gives a little pause to absorb it all. And I think that uh, interpolating the personal can be really moving and powerful. If your aunt Tess just passed away and you want to read a piece in her memory, then do it and tell the audience that you're doing it in her honor. Eighth, this is my last one, but it is by far the most important. Time your reading and don't read too long. Here's the single most important thing I can tell you. No matter how gifted you are and no matter how captivating your work and your reading style is, if you teach people to ignore your work by reading too long or abhor it if you read too long, then you're not doing any service to your writing. If you're asked to read for 15 minutes, consider reading for 12, but certainly not for 17. If you're told you can read for 30 minutes and you notice people getting restless at 25 minutes, end the reading. One of my undergraduate teachers, Ed Sanders, told me that you should always try to leave your listener wanting more. He also said, make sure the room is cold and not hot so that people don't fall asleep. If you're reading with two other people, say, and they go over the time limit, let me assure you that you are not entitled to do likewise. My friend Donna de la Perriere, who's a poet, says that when people go on reading too long, the audience goes through Kubler-Ross's stages of death and dying. <laughs> so, denial, bargaining, anger, depression, acceptance, I don't know. So these are the parameters that I try to employ when I'm thinking about what makes for a good reading, and I encourage you to have fun. Giving a reading is kind of scary, but it should be fun. And consider what kind of pre presentation will maximize the power of that particular work. My friend Suzanne Dykeman and I have been working on a project that involves each of us responding to poems by Cesar Vallejo. And we gave a reading once in which we had another poet, James Bellflower, who has a really beautiful, deep voice read Vallejo's poems. So he stood between us, and we each read to him off of the original that he had, um, that we had been responding to. And it was nice to have the male voice set off what we were doing, but I think it also helped the audience understand our process more. So it was a real pleasure. The very theatrical prose writer Vanessa Place has a massive book, hundreds of pages long, which I find, frankly, really unreadable. It's called La Medusa. And she will ask the audience to call out page numbers, and then she rips those pages from the book, reads them with a flourish, and then casts them on the ground. So I don't know if anybody remembers what she reads, but they sure remember how she reads it. Having put together a shapely reading, I would argue, is most useful in helping you learn about and how to respond to your own work. But there are some other practical reasons to attend to a value of the value of a public reading. Many of my poet friends who are often a generation younger than I am set up reading tours when they have a book or a chapbook published. 
So undeniably, a good reading can be a way to help sell books. It can be a commercial project. Um, I'm not a big seller of books. I'm not motivated that way. But I think that it is effective as a way to get your work out. And often people set up book tables or announce during the reading itself that the book is available. Um, something that's been perhaps more appealing and a real treat for me is to have people respond warmly to the work and come up and ask you to give them work for a publication. So a good reading could help you get published. I have direct experience that that's the case. Um, it's really exciting to have someone approach you after a reading and say, I really like that work and I have this magazine. And sometimes you're reading in places where you don't even know about these little publications. So it really helps you find out what the terrain is and to participate. It's a, it's a definite confirmation of your writing when someone does that. Um, and in one case, somebody asked me for a manuscript and it turned into a real life book. It can happen that if you read well, someone will ask you to read it in another place at another time. Um, so it, it really is a, a kind of calling card that brings you into a community. We read our work before an audience to affirm that the work does indeed exist, because sometimes it feels pretty invisible out in the world. And we affirm that it's valuable, and because we're participating in a larger community of readers and writers who in various ways share our commitments and pleasures. When you give a reading, you are claiming that you belong in and contribute to this literary world. And that's a most moving kind of activism, even if you are, day by day, a huge introvert. Because giving a reading is an act of participation, it is also, and always, a responsive activity, as I've said before. In your work, you're inevitably resounding off previous literary works. You're talking back to your own writing, and it is talking back to you, and you are bringing the audience into this wonderful process, making them your co-creators in the act of art making. So I'm going to end with one last memorable reading. It's, it's probably the most memorable reading I ever attended, and it took place at a writer's conference in rural Oklahoma. The fiction writer Amy Hempel read first a short story that dealt with a very charged familial triangle, and she did say it bore some direct relation to her own experience. And after she, read, she left the stage, the poet Robert Creeley was introduced. So you already know that I'm a serious Creeley fan. And this was after the, words are the only thing. <laughs> um, but I was, I was there for him. And he stated that he was so moved by Hempel's reading that he wanted to offer a reading that was correspondingly charged with feeling. So he proceeded to give one of the most emotionally disclosive, risky readings I've ever heard including in it a poem that he had written when his daughter was diagnosed as schizophrenic. People in the audience, I think, were just a bit stunned. And I was, again, crying. I seemed to cry at Creeley readings. And finally, the nonfiction writer, Philip Lopate, stood up and said, do you all know what you've just experienced? Are you aware, aware that you've just heard the greatest living poet in the United States? Do you know how lucky you are? Um, he decided in response to the other readings to move away from that kind of emotional intensity. But it was clearly a measured response to what he had just heard. And he read a beautiful, often funny essay about marriage and intimacy. And I've often thought back on that reading and the strangeness of being in this very, very rural place in Oklahoma, far from the homes of any of the authors and most of the attendees. 
The audience was mostly comprised of school teachers who were at the conference to get continuing education credits. So most of them had really wanted to be in the mystery writing workshop. And there they were, stuck with <laughs> Philip Lopate and Robert Bailey and Amy Hempel. So in that sense, you could say they weren't exactly the ideal listeners for some of these authors. But the room was shot through with a sense of attention, attention and generosity. The author's ability to respond to each other opened up their writing for everyone who was there. That is, these writers weren't just responding to each other, they were inviting the audience to participate in the life of literature as deeply as they did. And when we met in workshops the following day, there was a discernibly enhanced sense of excitement, greater ease, and confidence in the conversation. So I think this is what a good reading can do. It can expand beyond itself and make more writing possible in ways that we can't foresee. That's what I have to say. <laughs> so I'm eager to hear other people talk about their experiences, mishaps, the time you fell off the stage. Yeah. I'd like to contribute a, a do and a don't, if I may. I have done quite a few readings myself, and I've seen, I've been to quite a lot of readings, and I find that one of the most important things to do is to acknowledge your audience, yes. thank your audience. Do not patronize them, but make it plain that you are privileged to be addressing them, and they are not privileged to be addressing you. So That's a great point. Did you all hear that? Thank them at the beginning. Thank them with energy. And make it clear that you are honored to be there. Now, if I had if I had heard that kind of angry condescension from Lope, I would have wanted to clock him one. Oh, but you know, he really wasn't... I don't know how to express it. He wasn't really chiding the audience. He was really moved. So there was a sense of awe in his response to... Um, he was encouraging us to appreciate the Maybe gift of the. Uh, Perhaps you did, but it was yeah, really wonderful, actually. The don't I would like to present is don't try, don't be passive aggressive in your reading by trying to show off how esoteric you are. I recall a uh, reading I went to once where a woman gave a long, long, long reading in Japanese to an audience <laughs> who maybe could, maybe they could say bonsai, but that was the only Japanese they knew. People were getting up and leaving. People were shouting her down. It was a disaster. But she was obviously very proud of herself. Yeah, so that's part of being respectful to the audience. And reading in a language that very few people will understand is, is perhaps going to be a bit estranging. But I think the point of it is important to thank the audience for coming to, to listen to you and also to thank the people who organized the event. It takes a lot of work and time. So, really important. Yeah. Um, I, I had a question kind of related to that. As a teacher, I teach community college, and every now and then I'm, I'm lucky enough to get a creative writing or a you know, writing class of some kind. So, but I struggle with how to prepare and get my community college students, many who are really insecure about their writing, yeah. really, you know, doing the greatest thing they've ever done in their whole lives just by stepping over the threshold. So, Talk you just gave us is great to help all of us. It would be. What would be a baby step? How would you start with a class that's that insecure, that they want to go through? Is there a baby step? 
I would set up a time in class where you have them read in pairs to each other so that they, are, they feel pretty safe, but they're still reading out loud. And I found that a big step is to have people stand up when they read. It suddenly changes it. You're sitting at a table, at a seminar table with your classmates. You're still in, in the class. But as soon as you stand up, you're, you're putting yourself in a different context. So if you have one sit and the other stand and then trade off, I think that immediately helps them feel the difference. Um, yeah, Amy, did you have a? But if you're in a classroom, if you practice reading, because I think there's something really powerful about making language physical. If everybody's doing it all at once, there's a buzz around. So it's, it's not like you get a little bit of focus on yourself because you have one direct listener, but it doesn't have to be the whole class. And I, I too, never make it mandatory. But I will press people because my experience is that when a group of people reads, they feel really elevated and victorious afterwards. I always get these emails the day after going, we rock. And it's really pretty great. So I see your hand way in the back.
So in a sense, trying out public performance in different kinds of contexts. Yeah. And learning how to. Um, I see you back there, but we have another stand-up comic up here, so I'm going to give her a moment. My experience of this kind of thing mostly comes from Naropa, which sees itself as a kind of boisterous, countercultural community. And um, I think it is probably best to pause so that you're not drowned out while someone's being obnoxious and then try to continue on. I mean, it, reading is performative, but it's not performative in the same way that singing or acting or, you know, like stand-up would be. And I think a lot of times the audience will take care of that by letting the individual know that that's not appropriate. Yeah? What always works for me is if somebody starts interrupting, I'll just say, I'm going to be taking questions right after this, and I'll start with you. And that usually is satisfying. Yeah, that's a, that's a respectful way of setting a boundary. So um, I saw some hands back here, and then I'll come back. Me? Jonna, yeah.
so nice because I think we really do need more beauty and art in our everyday life and have somebody reflect on it in a heightened way gives it a different kind of meaning so it's a wonderful example I mean the way that people used to make birthday poems to celebrate you know we used to integrate this more it's a great example um, the woman in the black yeah It's like a, a little time in the language laboratory, just a different way of writing. I think that could be true. You know, the other, to go back to that, another thing that I've done is uh, sometimes I set up readings just in an empty classroom and they, people can invite their friends, which is less scary than going to a cafe. But I have them introduce each other. So that means that somebody has paid close attention to your work and is going to frame it in a way that says, this is what this person's gifts are. And I think that helps create a sense of community. And that, that might make it a little bit less scary, too. So. Yes? Hi, this is really interesting. And I love the idea of, of a later reader responding to an earlier reader. But how does that square? Can you just talk a little bit about how that squares with you know, being prepared and knowing what you're going to read? Do you think it's just something that comes with well, that's probably true. If you're if you're have enough experience to feel comfortable, then you can be more flexible. But if you have, to, you know, like I've seen people come into a reading and saying, "I have two short stories, and I'm gonna I'm gonna decide that I know that they're both the appropriate length." And I'm going to decide on the basis of what happens before me which one I read. So that can be part of the, you know, kind of creative editing process. You know you have some options and you're prepared fully with both. So that might be one way to approach that. It probably is more easy to do if you've got given a lot of readings and you're, you're kind of used to how terrifying it is. Any other comments? Fabulous readings you've been to, disastrous readings, like the reading I went to where the man kept reading until the janitorial staff came in and said it was time to go. <laughs> you don't want that to happen. Okay. 
this is not disastrous, but I have to say that the previous meeting I ever been to uh, was Ray Bradbury, and it was years ago. I was, I was 17, and he read in the Library of Congress. And um, the thing that was so fabulous about him, he died recently at 91, mm. and um, he, uh, he never once looked at a book. He never once had a written material in front of him. And, um, you know, he was just that kind of author slash performance slash shuckster, you know. Uh, it's just how he was. And um, not everybody can do that. Not everybody can you know, be a performance artist no. in, in, in reading their work, and, and they don't have to. But it was marvelous to have someone stand up there and tell, you know, the sound of thunder. sticks with you forever. I mean, yes. and also to be able to say, I heard Ray Bradbury read. You know, that's like, when I was in high school, I went to a conference, and I was totally out of my league and terrified. But Gwendolyn Brooks was there, and she stood up and gave a reading, and I can't even remember the title of this poem now, but it's extremely famous, and it's in many, many anthologies. We real cool, we, real cool, we skip school. And I heard her read that. And it was amazing to see it come to life in the mouth of the person who created it. And I will never, ever forget that. So there is this really magical quality. Yeah, Amy? Would it be impertinent to recall just how drunk John Ashbury was when he read in Iowa about 20 years ago? where he said, this poem should be sung to the tune of Reunited. And then he started to go, Reunited, and it feels so good. <laughs> he was like... seems to be a theme here. <laughs> 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 
Yeah, so point nine is do not come to the reading drunk. <laughs> Sober. So. Well, I think our time is up. Thank you so much.